Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Rise Together podcast. I'm so excited to introduce you to today's guest. Dr. Tracy Packiam Alloway is an award-winning British cognitive psychologist known for her research on working memory. She's a professor of psychology at the University of North Florida, where she is also the director of the graduate program in psychology. She is the author of 15 books and more than 100 scientific articles that have been featured on the BBC, Good Morning America, Today Show, Forbes, Bloomberg, and a bunch of others. She also has a book. We're going to talk about this. It's so fascinating. Think Like a Girl. 10 Unique Strengths of Women's Brain and How to Make Them Work for You. It just came out in May. Please welcome Dr. Tracy Alloway to the show. What would the world look like if we all pushed ourselves to have candid conversations with people who didn't look like us, think like us, or live like us? I'm Dave Hollis, and I'm on a mission to learn more about this world by meeting more of the people who live here. You may not always agree with everything you hear, but I guarantee you'll come away more informed on topics you might never have thought to seek out before. This isn't just a podcast, it's a community. And when we raise each other up, we all rise, together. I am excited to hear here. There's so many things I wanna dive into, but first, as much as I just gave you an introduction, would you, in your own words, tell listeners who you are, why you believe yourself to be on this planet and the kind of impact you'd hope to have? That is a loaded question. I'll try my best to keep it under a minute. So as a researcher, as a scientist, I really am passionate about finding out how the brain works. And as I began to do some of the research, I noticed that a lot of times the results of the data were presented with a kind of one size fits all this sort of broad brushstroke. Um, but the more I got into some of the data from my own lab and got into other people's research as well, I did see a lot of nuances that while on the surface, things may look similar, there are many different drivers and motivations that can lead us to make different decisions. And I wanted to celebrate some of these strengths instead of maybe having to, to rationalize or justify, but really look at, first of all, creating an awareness. How do we make the decisions we make? And ultimately, how can we maximize some of those strengths? Awesome. So you are, I mean, one, you're a professor, mm -hmm. but you're also in a field in psychology that obviously affects every single human being. You have an insight into the mind in a way that other people might not. When did you, how did you become interested in cognitive psychology? 
Um, actually, it was in high school. They had one of those job career days and different professionals came to speak to us. And I heard the psychologist speak and I thought, you know, that's what I would like to do. And I, I've never looked back. I love what I get to do every day. I know that a lot of your work ends up being around this idea of working memory, which was a term that until I started looking into you and this conversation today, I was not that familiar with. For anyone who's listening and does not know, can you define working memory for us? Sure. I like to think of working memory as our active memory in a sense that we, it's almost like this uh, space, this post-it note or this space that we have that links in information that we know and connects it with information that we're processing at the moment. So in a job interview, you're pulling out things that you know that you want to say, and you're connecting it to the questions that you have in front of you. We know that working memory plays a huge role in decision-making right from childhood right up to the end of our lifespan. So it's a really critical skill that we need. Excellent. So I know there's some of that inside of the work that has just come out in May. Your book is called Think Like a Girl, 10 Unique Strengths of a Woman's Brain and How to Make Them Work for You. I Come on, we got to dive into this. So um, one of the cool things about the book, there are, of course, these 10 unique strengths, and I want to understand what those strengths are. But I also love that the strengths end up dispelling myths that may exist in the broader consciousness of the world. So what's better? Should we dive into the strengths and maybe see how you can also disassemble some of the myths that some of our listeners may be themselves victim to? I love that approach, Dave. Let's do it. Okay. What is, uh, what is the first strength that you might point someone to when it comes to how women's brains work? I think for me, and that actually is chapter one, because I feel so strongly about this. And it's the idea of how we make decisions under stress and how uniquely our brain is set up to make those decisions. And the myth that goes along with that is that women tend to make more emotional decisions. So a really fun way that I used to unpack this uh, kind of the way in which our brain works was using something called the trolley dilemma. And some of your listeners may have heard of this. It's made its way into popular TV shows and so on. But you're there as a, the, a bystander and you see this train or trolley hurtling towards you. It's going to harm five people. You can save the day by switching the track. You will harm one person, though. So what do you do? It's a big dilemma here. And we know from other research that when people are, are tasked with making this decision, they actually show physiological signs of stress. So they do take this decision-making very seriously. Now, often what's happened is that women tend to um, make what's called a, a, a hot decision. So we know there are two pathways in our brain, a hot decision-making center, that's our amygdala, our brain's emotional center driving that. So often you hear comments like, oh, I, I can't do, I can't choose, I don't know what to do, it's too much or a cold decision-making center housed in the front of our brain, the prefrontal cortex, the more rational utilitarian approach. Now, what I discovered as I was writing this chapter is that women tend to fall under this hot decision-making uh, type because first of all, we are motivated by a desire to protect. We don't want to cause harm. So actually, while on the surface, it may not look so positive, it's actually coming from a really powerful, protective place. And women don't want to cause harm to anyone, the five people, the one person. And as a result, they tend to look like they're making a hot decision-making uh, approach. Now, in my lab, I found something fun that you can actually flip the switch in your brain. So let's say, you know, you are headhunted, you're given a job in a new city, and your first thought is, well, I can't let my team down. I want to I want to keep everyone together. I got to protect what we build together. I don't want to cause harm to anybody. 
And so at that point, it becomes a little tricky to make that cold decision. And I found that by introducing a little bit of stress, we can flip the switch. And one easy and quick way to do that is to stick your hand in a bucket of ice for one minute. <laughs> and in my lab, I found that this simple action actually reduces our physiological response. So we show elevated signs of stress in our body. And uh, my participants also reported feeling more stressed. And that's enough to activate a fight or flight in our brain. Our brain is busy thinking, my hand is in ice, I've got to tackle this. And that opens up our front of our brain, our cold decision-making center, to kind of weigh the pros and cons of that decision in a, a different, less emotional setting. Wow. Okay, so I have a couple of follow-up questions. One, is there a difference then in how men are thought of when it comes to decision making, right? Like I tend to be someone who makes sometimes emotional decisions and I'll stand by them because I think tapping into emotion at times can be something super motivating to create either urgency or change the stakes of something that I'm processing. And then two, is it necessarily bad to at times make the, like I wanna know the difference between men and women, but also is it bad to have emotion at the foundation of some of the decisions that you end up making. Yeah, so I did find that men typically tend to, they tend to be affected by stresses differently. So it's not so much that in my lab that men make less emotional or more emotional decisions, but rather how we're affected by stress. So women, if you introduce a cognitive uh, stressor, that also is effective for us. So a cognitive stressor that I used in my lab is counting backwards by sixes from 100. So 194, 88. And usually when I do this in talks, you hear a groan in the room. The whole room just sighs like, oh man, come on, we can't do this right now. So again, in my lab, we do show, participants are showing signs of stress. But so we do see that it's not necessarily different per se, but how men and women respond to stresses in decision-making too. And it's, I don't like to label decisions with value labels like good or bad, but effective or less effective. So you're absolutely right, Dave, in some situations, it may be more effective to make that hot decision-making that, that what may be perceived as an emotional decision for the reasons you indicated. And other times it may be more effective to then weigh everything out. So I think, again, it's, it's up to you, the listener, to the individual, what do you need to do in this situation? And you have a, a quick uh, tip to be able to stick your hand in the bucket of ice if you're struggling to flip the track in your brain. Yeah, what's interesting is I think I tend to listen to intuition, which I associate actually a little bit more with emotion than cognition. And I will then find other people who in objectivity and distance from the decision that's being made can play devil's advocate or ask if I've maybe thought about a different angle. But there are plenty of times, I don't know, maybe I'm weird, but there are plenty of times when that first instinct that tends to be a little closer to emotion ends up being the one that I'll go with because I feel it in a way that sometimes I can just overthink things. I, I'm a like kind of pragmatic, practical person by nature. And I can just spin, spin, spin. When I need to make a fast decision, I tend to go on emotion and, and gut a little bit more than I do laying every single thing out. I really love that you talked about that, that instinct and that first instinctual decision. Psychologists call that thin slicing, this idea that you can you know look at a very small piece of information and make a decision right away. And actually, that is not so much emotion as drawing from probably your wealth of experience and expertise in that particular area. So, you know, it's almost like uh, an artist looking at painting and being able to evaluate, yep, that's well done, that one less so. It's not that they're making an emotional decision simply because it's quick. 
it's this idea of thin slicing. They only need a few seconds to make that decision because they're so skilled in that particular area. So that may be you. That may be the process you're doing there. At Alma, we know the connection between you and your therapist matters. But if you're already feeling stressed and burnt out, the idea of trying to find a therapist you really connect with can be overwhelming. That's why Alma's focused on helping you find the right therapist for you. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search based on the qualities that are most important to you. Then you can book a free 15-minute consultation call with any therapist you're interested in seeing. So you can get a feel for whether they're the right fit before you commit to a full-length session. Alma also makes it easy for mental health care providers to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of therapists in their directory accept insurance for sessions. So you can find care that's affordable without stressing about the paperwork. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com therapy60 to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com therapy60. Take us through another strength. What's the second most important strength you might call out in Think Like a Girl? I think this is actually not so much as a strength, but an awareness. And it's really about our mental health. And it's interesting that you just mentioned the spinning your wheels, because that is one of the things I wanted to look at in the context of happiness and, and mental health. And obviously the, the converse or the parallel of that of depression and how that affects us men and women differently. And we do see here that neurochemistry plays a very important role. So the female brain is set up that we have three times more receptors that make us attend to stress and anxiety. And so we know that that's a neurochemistry, but that's not deterministic. There are lots of things that we can do to kind of, again, change our mindset and so on. But in one of my pieces of research, you know, I had a few hundred people in this particular study, and I wanted to look at some uh, precursors. What can, what are the buffers that can protect us, both as men and as women, so that we don't or we're less likely to experience depression or depressive symptoms? And I found that for men, it was really interesting. If they had a sense of agency, that idea of locus of control, what can you change? What can you keep in your control? That for men was a very powerful and significant buffer against experiencing depressive symptoms. For women, it was it was a little bit different. It was almost like the anti-buffer. And for women, I found that the women who ruminate more, this kind of spinning their wheels more, tended to be more likely to experience depressive symptoms. And I think at, at this point, as a woman, if you know that this is kind of your track, or this is what you're going to end up doing, or that's how the brain is naturally set up, we can step in and circumvent that right away. And a quick uh, thing from science that shows us is simply changing one word can make a difference. So instead of saying, how was the job interview today? Or, you know, how did that go? Well, yeah, well, yes, but this happened. And oh, yes, but I didn't get to say everything. Change the but to an end. Yes, and I had a chance to showcase my skills. Yes, and I was able to network. And lots of research shows that in our brain, we have almost a continuum between optimism, so this, this hope, this positivity, this outlook for our future, and pessimism, more like nothing good ever happens to me, no matter what I do, I, I can't make things happen. And we can change that by changing our language. So our optimism bias tends to be housed in our language center of the brain. So the more we practice this skill, the more we practice saying, yes, and this happened, the more we express gratitude, simple daily habits like that actually show more activation in that optimism center of our brain. So it's a really quick, powerful habit that can make a difference. 
So how, what, what do you track back to the reason for that difference, right? Like, because I, I connect to agency. If I feel like I am having some kind of control over the impact I'd hope to bring to this world, I feel good about myself. But if, if that exists, is that a byproduct of the patriarchy or some like gender norms, rules thing that's existing that somehow has influenced the way that I feel that might be different than uh, a woman or a female listener that's listening right now. Sure. And, you know, some psychologists may use an evolutionary psychology perspective. So this idea that, you know, when you are set up in that particular environment, when you have to provide for your tribe or your family, or your unit, then you have to be in charge. You have to figure out how to be an agent in your environment. So there is certainly that explanation. And certainly for the female brain, you had the biological or the neurochemical explanation where you're, we're, we're kind of set up in a way that's making us ruminate or overthink a little bit more. And again, none of this is deterministic. It's just an explanation. Um, so we can decide how we want to proceed. Uh, but I think that certainly you could argue from an evolutionary psychology perspective that, you know, we have this path set out for us and, and agency is clearly a very important piece in that. Yeah. So is the myth here that you're dispelling in this conversation that women suffer from more unhappiness than men or something yeah. in that kind of space? Yeah, that's exactly right. So in this chapter, I was looking at whether women experience depression more than men. And in, in this instance, it's not it's not a myth, but we don't have to experience depression. Um, right on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. All right. Third strength, what's the number three thing that you would say strengths-wise that come out of Think Like a Girl? Um, I think it has to do with our intelligence. And in, our, in the chapter in intelligence, I look specifically at lying. So some of my research, as you mentioned, Dave, I, I, uh, my research expertise and interest centers on working memory. And I wanted to look at the link between the lies that we tell and how intelligent we are measured by our work memory. And as you know, when you tell a lie, you have to juggle multiple pieces, what you know, what you think your listener knows, what they don't know, what you want to present, what you want to conceal and so on. And that involves our active memory. We have to kind of keep track of all of these moving parts. And I saw that children as young as six and seven, the higher their working memory, so the better their working memory scores were, the better uh, they were at telling lies. Um, but what I found was interesting here is so the myth is do women tell more lies than men? And what I found here was looking at lying a little bit differently. So not so much white lies versus big lies or so on, but what psychologists call antisocial versus pro-social lies. So imagine a young child, you know, cookie crumbs all over the face. Mom or dad says, did you eat those cookies? No, no, I didn't. That's an antisocial lie. They're lying to protect themselves. They don't want to get in trouble. A pro-social lie would be, did your brother or sister eat those cookies? And they say, no, no, they didn't, to protect someone else. So pro-social, like the name suggests, you lie to protect yourselves. And there's a few pieces of adult research to show that women will tell more pro-social lies than antisocial lies. So here we see this idea of community protection coming into play again. And I wanted to track this back. How far back down the lifespan does this go? How early on can we see signs of pro-social lying in this case? And so I worked with a group of three and four-year-olds and we had a really fun study. We put up a paper basket, paper balls, and they had to throw those uh, balls into the basket. But Dave, we set them up for failure. We set the distance so far away that they couldn't be successful, but we incentivized them. We said the more baskets you make, you get this big prize. So we kind of wanted them to cheat and lie about it a little bit. And of course, then we had an adult come in and also intentionally cheat and, you know, and come a little closer than they should to make those baskets. And we asked them, 
Did you cheat when you were throwing those balls in the basket? And did the adults cheat when they were throwing the balls in the basket? And here again, we found that as young as three years of age, our young girls would be more willing to tell a pro-social lie uh, to protect someone else. Wow. So like, when it comes to lying, I actually, when I was reading this part of the book, I think of the lies that men tell, this is a super generalization, as being more connected to ego preservation, mm-hmm. where my, my hypothesis on the lies that women might tell more often is more about acceptance and inclusion or having an ability to not deviate from the norm. Does any of that bear out in any of the research that you've done or am I just on the lark here? Um, Actually, it is really fascinating. There are some brain imaging research uh, done on men and women and the kinds of lies and what's happening in the brain when that's happening. So they found that for men, when they were asked to lie about personal information, their brain was working a lot harder than when they were lying about facts, you know, just sort of general information, the kind of, you know, riffing or whatever, but they're just throwing out facts like, yeah, yeah, I'm pretty sure that's true. There was not a lot of effort involved in telling that lie versus when they had to lie about themselves or something personal to them. Women, on the other hand, showed no difference between telling a kind of factual or general information lie versus lying about something personal. And the researchers suggested it's because women, they get more skilled at lying about themselves as part of acceptance, like you're saying, acceptance into society, preserving a certain image, not wanting to maybe be passed up for certain jobs or so on, or whatever perceived bias may exist around them they tend to be more comfortable and therefore use less brain energy or effort in telling those personal type of lies. Are you a good liar? (laughs) I mean, like, it just dawns on me in real time that you have got a lot of information that other people may not have about lying and the reasons why. It's a joke. You don't need to answer that question. I wouldn't believe you if you told me. (laughs) All right, number four, give us another of the strengths inside the book. Another one of the strengths is about leadership. And here I did have a chance to interview some fascinating female leaders. And here the myth that I wanted to address was, do we have to adopt these more masculine traits to be a good leader? So even some of the women that I was interviewing, or even when I was looking at discussion of forum boards, I noticed a lot of women saying things like, well, I had to dress, a, you know, it, it was suits so or dress to look like my male colleagues or kind of speak in a certain way that was perceived to be more like my male colleagues. And so I wanted to really look a little bit more. And again, none of this is generated socially or culturally, not from our brain's neurochemistry. And I wanted to explore this a little bit more. So one of the first things I did was look at leadership. And I found that leadership is not a personality trait. It's not like extroversion or introversion. We're not born with a particular leadership trait. And for a lot of women that I've spoken to so far, this for them was a game changer. You know, they would say, I always thought of myself as this kind of a leader. And that's the way I was born. But in fact, it's a style, just like we were talking about decision making. We adopt the best leadership style, the most effective leadership style for the situation. And there are typically two, or broadly speaking, two. One is a transactional leader. And that is the goal-driven, hey, we got a project, we got a deadline, let's work to get it done. And the second style is transformational. This is the collaborative, connective, everyone put ideas on the table, let's kind of see what's going to work here. And I think, again, what's key here is that not one style is better or more effective. It does depend on the situation. But here's what's interesting, Dave, is two things. One, in another study, uh, when women adopt a style that is not authentic, when they try to adopt more masculine traits that was not authentic to themselves, their male colleagues 
perceived them as weaker leaders. So it was counterproductive. So their peers, their male peers specifically were saying, yeah, I don't think she's a strong leader because that did not seem authentic to who uh, she was as a leader. And the second thing I found from my own research lab is that when women were adopting a style that was not authentic to themselves, they were more likely to experience stress and burn out very quickly. Here, the, the, the strength is, you know, read the room, almost see what that situation is calling for, and don't feel like you have to put yourself in a box of pigeonhole yourself because you're thinking that leadership is a trait and you're born with it, and that's what you should be doing. So good. Oh, my goodness. I love those insights. Was there anything in the research that you saw different by level? Were people at a lower level more likely to shapeshift versus someone at a higher level who maybe because of their title or because of their influence felt they could be more authentic to themselves and live in their own skin? Such a great question, Dave. And absolutely, certainly at a beginning level or entry level positions, conformity is a big piece of that. We want to fit into the professional society or the fabric of the, of the culture or the workplace environment that we're working in. And that in and of itself may also feel a little bit inauthentic. We may be you know, pushed to respond in certain ways that are not authentic. But typically when we're looking at leadership, we're, we are looking at mid to higher level positions rather than entry level positions. Yeah. It's so, I mean, like you think about creating your personal brand and the things you'd have to do every day to consistently represent whatever that ends up being. Mm -hmm. If you're being inauthentic to yourself, are you really creating your personal brand? Are you creating something that's a deviant of, you know, somebody else in a higher position or what you believe to be what the culture is calling for? Mm -hmm. Uh, It's, I mean, it's hard to tell someone as they're entering the workforce or as they are starting a new job, be yourself. But that's the thing that's going to end up creating more confidence and have you, as your research is saying, come off as a more credible leader, someone that people want to actually listen to and follow, collaborate with. Ah, love that. Uh, all right. Number five, give me the fifth strength that comes out of the book. I mean, I could, I'll just do this all day. Come on. <laughs> I love it. I love it. Um, And this has to do with risk taking. So I think women too, we have a different decision making metric when it comes to evaluating and ultimately taking risks. And this can be a real strength. And I'll, I'll get to that in a moment. But the myth associated with that is that women don't take as many risks as men or less likely to take uh, as many risks as men. And certainly the research here is a little skewed. It does seem to suggest that, but largely because the way in which risk is defined in the scientific literature tends to be very dramatic, uh, daredevil-y type activities. And so when you look at things like jumping out of a plane or motocross driving or you know speed racing, these tend to be traditionally the, the way risk is defined in the literature. And so as a result, women, we have the skew in the report for how often we are likely to do that. But I think we want to keep in mind one, for the first thing is this idea of a risk return framework. So in other words, if we're taking this risk, what is the return? What are we going to get out of it? And for women, we use something very unique when we make that that kind of pros and cons list. We look at emotion a lot of times. So if we're going to feel good as a return, if there's a positive emotion that we're getting out of it, sometimes we don't even view that decision-making as a risk. And I remember talking to a, you know, a female entrepreneur about this and she said, oh my gosh, listening to you speak, I moved my kids across the country. I, all I had was I signed them up for school and I had a place to live, that was it. And everyone was saying, this is risky, you're crazy. But she said, for me, it was such an important and meaningful decision. She didn't even view that as a risk-taking 
action for her. And so I think that, you know, this is a great example of as women, how we can really lean into our emotions and, and think, are we going to get something positive out of it? And if the answer is yes, we're more likely to take that risk. So interesting. Is there for men then something that's different in how they're motivated or think about risk and forget the motorcycle jumping out of planes <laughs> risk, but just like, right, risk, risk in life. Is there is there something that's more connected to status or something? I, I, I assume that it's not the same kind of thing that it's, oh, if I can feel good, it will be the reason why I want to go do something. But I also don't want to make that assumption. Yeah, so I think that's a, an interesting question. Largely, the idea for risk return for men has been looked at almost a, a quantitative metric, you know, just if you're making a list, what are you going to get out of it? Whereas for women, it's not the quantity, it's the quality of that. Oh, that's good. Um, yeah, no, I, and I've experienced it in my own life. I'm sure people can resonate and, and, and understand that in their own lives. What's the sixth? What's the sixth strength? Um, the sixth has to do with our relationships, our romantic relationships. And here I really wanted to look at it from a different angle. So um, the first thing that I looked at is the, the type. What type do we go for? And instead of looking and, you know, one of the things I talk about in the chapter is there's a huge survey, thousands of people, different countries, different you know backgrounds and so on. And of course, people report going for a certain type that follows exactly what you'd expect. Women go for status in, in their uh, male partners, men go for attractiveness in their female partners. So nothing really surprising, except for the science is very different. <laughs> so when we actually look at the science, the type that matters is not so much those types of things, like what type are you attracted to, but personality type. So you may have heard of, or your listeners may have heard of the big five, big five personality traits, extroversion, uh, conscientiousness, which tends to relate to being hardworking, you know, goal-driven and so on, open to new experiences. So this could be the, the curious, inquisitive type of individual, agreeableness, the, the kind of person that's like, oh, yeah, I'll go along, whatever, you know, the easygoing type. And finally, the neurotic type. And sometimes the neurotic type gets a bad rep, but it can be a positive thing. This is the artist, the kind of, you know, creative thing that maybe also has that self-doubt, but a lot of positive qualities as well. And so what research typically shows is that there are two traits of the five that are really powerful predictors of um, relationship satisfaction. So how satisfied couples report to feeling in their romantic relationships. And one is conscientiousness. So if you're with a partner who's conscientious, you can imagine they're going to put the work in, they've got that effort. The tricky thing is that in our 20s and we're younger, conscientiousness can appear negative. It can appear someone who's a perfectionist, who's just kind of consumed with their work, who's just sort of focused. The good thing about conscientiousness is that it mellows over time. So if you catch someone past their 20s, these the, the positive aspects of conscientiousness really start to shine. And, and you know they're going to put that same level of effort into your relationship. Uh, the second is agreeableness, which, you know, makes sense. Um, if you think about everyday life, it's full of small decisions. Sometimes we think of, of partnerships as large decisions, but often it's the small decisions that can either make or break us. And agreeableness is a, an important predictor of how satisfied we feel in our long-term romantic relationships. So interesting. So on conscientiousness, is there a line, a fine line between like hustling for your affection or, or your <laughs> worthiness in this relationship and having goals and being, you know, goal oriented? It feels like there may be. And separately, how do you like, how do you gauge where you are in each of these five buckets? Like, is there 
what resource would you use? I have no idea, but I'm like desperate now to go and find <laughs> out where am I like over indexing? Where am I under indexing? Are there tools sure. to help in the places where I am under? Let's go. <laughs> and the good news is psychologists have the answer for that. They are a lot. If you, if you Google, you know, big five personality tests, there are lots of standardized. So I don't mean like kind of, Hey, Facebook, you know, here's a little quiz for you to do. Yeah. Um, but actual legitimate psychologically driven standardized measures of the big five personality. Um, as a professor, that's actually one of the tools I look at in my classroom. I bring that into my students. We critique it. We evaluate it. We, we say, is this even a value? What is the purpose of this kind of test in everyday life? And so they are tools for listeners to be able to look at that will give you an actual score that is calibrated against, you know, thousands of other people in that same age group and, and so on. So you can see where your strengths, where you kind of on the low end and how can you kind of uh, demonstrate some more in, in any particular area. Love that. All right. Number seven, what is the next strength inside of this conversation? Uh, think like a girl. Come on. Sure. So I'm going to build on our last one. So you've got the, I actually wrote, I should have done this, uh, this, this conversation with you, David, pairs, because there are five, you know, five sort of broad pairs. And so the, the love brain, as I called it, you have the attraction and then the bonding. And so how do you pass that dopamine that, wow, this is amazing. How do you keep it sticking? How do you keep that bonding happening? And here um, it's really critical that we actually look at attachment style. And again, research shows that the attachments we form as a child with our parent or our caregiver often set the framework or the template for how we then engage in our, sometimes even our friendships and our romantic relationships. So I, I'm a licensed psychologist. I just finished a call with a client and we were talking about attachment styles and they said, you know, I realized I, the way I treat my partner is the same way I treat my friends. And I'm seeing the same pattern of conflict and miscommunication arising. And I, I just realized this now. And so we do know that attachment style can impact all our, all our relationships, not just our romantic relationships. And so broadly speaking, we have three attachment styles, the secure attachment, which needs really no explanation. The second is the anxious attachment style. That's the person that wants to get close to someone that feels they need a lot of validation. Like I texted, why didn't they text me back? Or I set up plans, but I don't know, they haven't agreed. Are they going to cancel last minute? So they need a lot of reassurance. And in part that could do, uh, that could be because they had a parent or caregiver that was neglectful or not really attentive to them. And so they develop the sense of needing to constantly reach out for validation. Are you still there? Are you still there? Um, and so they bring that into their friendships and their, their romantic relationships too. And then the third is the avoidant. The, uh, and this is often a result of a parent who was, was uh, ambivalent, but kind of hit and miss. They would either just be, oh, you're just amazing, a lot of affection, a lot of love, and then pull back, just like, hey, don't bother me now, I'm just, you know, really busy. And so they bring that into a relationship where they tend to avoid conflict, or they want to pull away the minute they notice their partner getting close, they pull back. And um, often you see the cycle that an anxious attached person will seek out and avoid it attached because that is the pattern that they grew up with and so oftentimes you may find people say well why do I fall for the wrong people all the time or why is why do all my relationships end in this way and I just can't get past this and it could be because of the type of attached style they're manifesting the good news is attachment style is exactly that just like leadership it's a style we can change it we can find ways for healthy communication and work our way towards being securely attached with our partner so if someone listening right now can identify with some self-awareness that they are mm -hmm. one of the two, 
is there a way for them to engage in a conversation, to try and bridge some of what might exist as a gulf or codependency or whatever you want to call it, to try and get to a place that feels a little healthier? And and maybe that's even wrong for me to suggest that you need to do that, but it feels like an opportunity. Yeah, it it does. And again, it's up to the individual. If you feel like you're not engaging in a healthy communication style, it's not working for you. Um, Certainly awareness is the first type. And they are, again, like we talked about with the big fund, they're also standardized, psychologically derived scales. I think this one in particular, there are just 18 questions that can help you identify if you fall in the more avoidant or anxious style. But that recognition is important. So for example, if you know that you have an anxious attachment style and your partner doesn't text you back right away, your instinct may be, you know, your mind starts swirling. Oh my gosh, did I say the wrong thing? I never should have complained about the dinner Latin and all of these things. And you're on the spiral. But if you know that, you can stop yourself right away. And again, you know, with, with therapy or whatever, there are lots of techniques that you can say, no, stop. This is just my mind spinning. They're probably busy. And, you you know, you, you come out to a more healthy conclusion that, no, this is uh, not what I need to be thinking. Um, one fun way to kind of bring stress down in any kind of conflict or disagreement when you are having the conversation with your partner is with a hug. So research shows that a 20-second hug can actually de-escalate a physical, our cortisol level, so our stress hormone, and boost oxytocin, which is our bonding hormone. So, you know, I I try to recommend to my clients when they're having a disagreement, if you can just reach out and hold your partner's hand or whatever you feel comfortable, you know, that that touch brings oxytocin back into the conversation. I love the hug recommendation. (laughs) I've actually found too, even in like in work environments where you have to have a hard conversation, like language matters a lot. Mm -hmm. So just even like starting a hard conversation with my intention here is just to frame what your hoped for outcome ends up being can, you know, maybe allow someone to hear something without defensiveness or allow you maybe someone who's a little conflict averse Mm -hmm. to have that permission to step into it with respect and an interest in growth or, or, or something that might in feedback afford this person a gift. Yeah. All right. Number eight. What is number eight? <laughs> I'm going to have to look at the book for this one. Uh, number eight. <laughs> if you tried to do this for my book, honestly, I'd be like, hold on, man. What are you t- I got to get the book. Uh, number eight is back to leadership. And it's this idea of empathy again. So I know we've been talking a lot about how, you know, emotions play, play a role and sometimes a very powerful and important role. But in the workplace, there's also this idea of what's called ruinous empathy, where too much empathy can be a negative. And just to build on what you said before about the workplace and having that open conversation, sometimes for women, they're so motivated by empathy and a desire to kind of protect that they don't even want to give feedback. Uh, or even receive feedback. And so that in that way, it can be ruinous. And so just ways to be able to recognize what is happening, first of all, and realize that we can dial down the empathy a little bit and give feedback in a very positive you know, way. And one of the things too, I talk about sometimes women, there's a disconnect between their competence and their confidence. And so, you know, there's a well-known survey that's often quoted where 
women will have to will feel like they have to meet 100% of a job qualifications before they feel confident to apply. Whereas men, you know, they 60%, I mean, it's more than half, I'm going to apply. And so one easy way to kind of bridge that gap between confidence and competence is um, power posing. So there's research to show that our body language makes a big difference. So putting your hands on your hips, so even posture. So the way in which we sit, research shows that even sitting with your shoulders back, people reported, um, feeling more confident, feeling, reporting more positive traits about their ability to achieve at work. And their cortisol levels actually decreased as well. So just a quick two minutes of power posing. It, and and uh, this is based on something called embodied theory. So often when we're stressed or anxious, your brain is communicating to your body how to be, you know, so you may start sweating, your heart beats faster because your mind is telling you all these negative things. So instead of trying to argue with your mind, we are almost reversing the cycle. You let your body tell your mind what you're feeling. And so your posture and all of that is a cue to your brain. Like, well, if I'm standing up straight, I must be feeling, you know, pretty confident about the situation. Um, and there's along the lines as happiness associated with that too. It's called biting a pencil and it's uh, based on facial feedback hypothesis. So when you are feeling down, biting a pencil forces your facial muscles into a smile and almost tricks your brain into feeling happy for the moment. Oh, what a hack. Love that. <laughs> I, ruinous empathy, by the way. It's something I talked to teams about through the years. I had uh, everyone on my team for years watch a very quick YouTube video that Kim Scott, who wrote a book called Radical Candor, yes. put out. If you just write, if you YouTube Kim Scott, Radical Candor, it's like a 20 minute video. It is, I don't know, like there's something that transforms the way that you might see feedback and candor mm -hmm. as a, a show of love, as a show of actually caring for someone. That ruinous empathy, though, is one of the four squares. And it's just like when you see it, then you can't unsee it. Yeah. And hopefully it keeps you from being that person yeah. on a going forward basis. All right. Uh, we're nearing the end. Number nine. <laughs> yeah. Number nine. This has to do with uh, generosity. And, you know, are women more generous? Are we more altruistic uh, than men? And I wanted to look at this in the context of digital giving. You know, there's a lot of research on, on things like tipping and just generally giving to charities and so on. And I wanted to kind of contextualize it in our current era, you know, our, our Kickstarters, our GoFundMes and all these online digital giving. And I found that um, it's not so much that women give more or less than men. It's what motivates us to give that's different than what motivates men to give. And so for women, we're motivated when we are connected to the cause. If we feel we're part of that community, we're much more likely to give. And that, that's coming out of my own research lab. But uh, for men, it's a little different. They're motivated to give, or men are motivated to give when they feel a need to protect, if, you know, save the environment or whatever the, the, the protect and so on. If it's couched in those uh, framework, then men are more likely to give. So if you're out there and you're trying to raise a campaign, knowing uh, what's motivating your audience can make a big difference. So good. All right. Bring us home, Dr. Tracy. <laughs> what is the 10th strength that women possess? Uh, it has to do with our creativity. And so here the myth is that maybe women are not as creative as men. And, you know, I, I start off quoting a study that when, when we're asked to think of creative expressions for things like TED Talks and so on, men get awarded a lot of these creative phrases and women less so when we're describing that. And it's not so much that we're less creative, it's how we use our creative brains. So we find that for women, we show a generalized activation. So if you're trying to think of a creative solution, don't sell yourself short. Don't think that, oh yeah, I can't do it. I'm, as a woman, I'm just not that creative type. We all are. And oftentimes you have to quiet down the front of your brain, your thinking brain, and let the more subconscious 
automatic brain kick in. It's called the default mode of your brain. Like, like the name suggests, it's your default. It's a kind of sub-level happening in the background. And so we know that for women, they have a generalized activation. They're kind of drawing from all over and that can be really powerful. And for men, it's more localized. Like if you're saying, hey, I need something visual here, that's the part of the brain that's being activated and drawing that kind of visual strategy. So good. All right. Your book, Think Like a Girl, 10 Unique Strengths of a Woman's Brain and How to Make Them Work for You. It just came out in May. I'm so, this was rad. Thank you, Thank you. for taking us through the, the, the strengths and dispelling some of these myths. If someone wants to follow you, learn more about the book, dive more into your work, where on the interwebs do you live? <laughs> so I have a website, tracyalloway.com. I'm on Instagram as doctor, that's D-R, Tracy Alloway on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn. I would absolutely love to connect with your listeners. Excellent. All right. Last question. I ask every person who comes on the show, what is the one key takeaway that you would leave our audience with? It could be an idea, question, an actionable piece of advice. What's the one thing you want to leave listeners with today? That's such a great question, Dave. And for me, it would be a tip from the book that I uh, practice regularly, and that's the yes and principle. Just changing my mindset by simply changing the language that I use has made a huge difference and makes a huge difference every day in my life. And that, that is my, my big takeaway and my big game changer for me. So good. Language matters so much. The way that you even just change a single word, but to and will make you think completely differently about all the things. Dr. Tracy, thank you so much for being with me today. I appreciate you so much. Thank you so much for having me, Dave. This was so much fun. I really enjoyed it. If you, the listener, got anything from this and how could you not have, please take a picture of the podcast on the device you're listening to right now. Tag Dr. Tracy Alloway, tag myself, share in social so we can see what you thought. And between now and next week, yes and, not yes, but we'll see you all on the next episode of the Rise Together podcast. Rise Together is hosted by me, Dave Hollis. This show is produced by Chelsea Harfouche and edited by Andrew Weller with production support by Sterling Coates. Cameron Berkman is our executive producer. Rise Together is a product of The Hollis Company.